Haggai chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. And so we'll just do a short recap, pick back up where we left off. I won't take the time to go through all the applications that we've been making in this chapter so far. There's questions asked here in verse 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? I believe there's a twofold purpose in why these questions are being asked. One was to continue to stir them back to work. Remember, that's why Haggai came on the scene, was sent by God to get them to rebuild the temple that they had started building when they came out of Babylonian captivity, but then ceased, and then when Artaxerxes took over, and then by the time Darius had been in, in charge for a couple of years, then they get back to work after Haggai and also Zechariah show up to get them back to work. And so I think that's part of it, but I think the other reason is God was also trying to encourage them in this building process that they were going through because this temple that they are rebuilding here, it wasn't going to rival Solomon's temple, if I can use that term, the, the first temple. It wasn't going to be as grand. They didn't have the same resources. And you have to remember when Solomon built um, the temple, David had spent the end of his life just storing up resources and supplies for Solomon and those were the glory days of Israel. And so they had plenty of resources and they also had plenty of influence in the world to get all of this together to do what it was they needed to do for all of that stuff. Because that temple was, it was just incredible, the amount that went into that. Um, but this was a people here in Haggai who only a few years later, or excuse me, a few years earlier had been released from a 70-year captivity. And while some things were provided by Cyrus when they were released, and in fact, some of the items from the temple were given back to them when they came back, but they didn't have this great amounts of gold, all this silver. I mean, they weren't getting rich in captivity. And so they didn't have all this to come back to put into the house of God. And so in verse 4, the charge is first given to Zerubbabel, it starts at the top. It starts with the governor. Remember, Zerubbabel, if I've got my facts straight here, uh, he would have been king had they never went into captivity. And so it starts Zerubbabel, and then he, 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 he tells Joshua, the high priest, and then he tells all the people, be strong. Be strong and work. And, and God assures them that he's going to be with them according to his word, and that his spirit remained among them. And because of that, God says, look, you don't have to fear. Just, just press on for me. But let's remember what God says to them. Uh, I mentioned this last week, what God is going to say to them by Zechariah in about four months from here, uh, Zechariah is going to tell them, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And, and just after that, Zechariah is also going to tell them, uh, don't despise the day of small things. Look, it's not much now, 
but it's going to be something. It's not that we have a lot now, but you just stay with it. Because listen, you've got to be strong and work, but it's not by your strength, it's not by your power, but it's by my spirit. And God says, I'm going to be with you. My spirit's upon you. Don't fear. Just get back to work. And, and basically, I would put it this way. I believe what they're being told is, if you'll do your part, God says, I'll do my part. Isn't that comforting to know? That if we'll just simply do the things that God has asked us to do in his word, uh, maybe I should say commanded us to do in his word, that he'll do his part because there are blessings associated. Amen. That's still what's in the Bible. I know we live in a prosperity day, but there's still the idea of holiness and obedience and all this other stuff. And so uh, God's just telling them, look, you do what you need to do. I'm not going to fail you. Amen. And then as we begin today... In verses 6 through 9, God gives this incredible prophecy through Haggai. And as we've been going through this book, you may have wondered why in the world it's a prophetic book, because up to this point, we really haven't had any prophecy. Just been encouraging them to get back to work. That's what you need to be doing. And then here it is. This is um, the prophecy of Haggai. That's very important for us to study. And I, and I hate to do this because Brother DeGarmo's here. I hate to give a dry lesson when he's here because it really encourages him to think it's okay for him to do that. And it's not. Um, and so last time he was here, I tried to give some humor to encourage him. But um, Brother, don't take this as the gold standard, okay? For some of you, this will be deep waters, and I'll probably lose some of you. If you'll just pretend, that'll be fine. I don't care if you're listening to something, you know. Uh, just don't let me see the wires and just shake your head, and we'll get through it. Uh, for others, the interpretation of this prophecy is actually is pretty uh, hotly debated by some. It can be divisive if you let it. It's, it, you know, people wonder, is it referring to Christ's first coming, his second coming, a physical temple, a spiritual temple, all this kind of stuff. And um, as, as always, I'll try to do my best, for what that's worth, to give you my opinion on, on what's being said. But um, I won't be offended if all you do is take this lesson as my opinion. I, uh, that'll be fine with me. But um, I personally don't see anything here that's worth being divided over. Um, it's funny, though. Most of the times I, I say that, and there's usually one that... Uh, makes a big deal about it. But I will tell you this. This is definitely a prophecy of Christ. Amen. It is my opinion that verse 6 should never be separated from verse 5. Understand when you study the Word of God that context is everything. You must understand what is being stated in the context of... And listen, this can be a vast thing because it can be maybe just a couple verses around that verse. It may be the entire chapter. It may be the entire book. It may be principles throughout the entire Word of God. And so you've got to understand context in order to rightly divide the Word of God. And, and I think that verse 5 really helps us to understand. It's, it's helping us to get into what is going to be said in verse 6, beginning in verse 6. And so um, God said before this prophecy that he would be with them there in verse 5, that he would be with them according to the word that he covenanted with them when they came out of Egypt. And I believe there's two words there that are very important for us to kind of pick up on as we get into what this is telling us. One is uh, Egypt. The other is the covenant. And I think also important is that God there is saying at the end of that verse, don't fear. And so uh, with that in mind, you have to understand one of the major events when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, on the first day of the third month after their departure out of Egypt, they uh, arrived to Sinai. God leads them there in Exodus chapter 19, and there God enters into a covenant with them. God comes down upon the mount, but the whole event was terrifying. It was not this, it was not this appearance of God that everybody wanted to flock to. And, and it, it, was, it, it was scary, if I can put it that way. 
there were boundaries that had to be set at the base of the mountain. And God had, had let, let Moses know, if anybody touches the mountain, beast or man, they're dead. You got to kill them. And so they set up this boundary around the base of the mountain because God only wanted Moses to come up to the top. But when God came down, it was so frightening, the people didn't even think about approaching the mountain. The Bible says in Exodus 19.16 that they saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. This was a, this was a scary moment uh, for them. And then in Exodus 19.18, we read, And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And that's important. And the people said to Moses, Moses, you speak with us because we don't want to talk to God or else we'll die. You don't have to turn there yet, but you can peek if you want. (laughs) In Hebrews 12, 21, it says, even of Moses, listen, this is how Moses felt that day. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. The law covenant came in with great fear is what I'm trying to say. And Haggai 2, 5 and 6 hints back to that covenant. It's getting us to look back at what took place when God gave the law. And we know this from Hebrews 12, 26, where we'll look at later, it references back to Haggai. And, and there, when we get there, in Hebrews it says, concerning the giving of the law, whose voice then whose voice back then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. So when we read Haggai chapter 2 in connection with Hebrews 12, we can see that the earth shook once before, and that it's going to shake once again according to the prophecy here in Haggai. Sinai shook with the establishment of the law covenant, or what the Bible now calls the old covenant. And could it be that Haggai here is telling us that the earth would also shake with the establishment of the new covenant? But not only will the earth shake, but the heavens will shake as well. There's been many opinions given as to what this could refer to. And uh, I'll just give you some that I came across because there was quite a bit of them. But um, some say that um, Christ's birth... Might might have been this occasion because there was a star which appeared in the east and it guided the wise men, or appeared and it guided the wise men from the east, and and so they kind of interpret that as the shaking of the heaven. Some would say Christ's baptism when God spoke from heaven. Uh, he did that a couple times throughout Christ's ministry. Um, this one makes a lot more sense, perhaps at Calvary when the heavens went black, and at Christ's second coming is a good option as well, where we are told the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. So those are some opinions on that. We're told in verse 6 that all of this would happen in a little while. What does that mean? Well, in the eyes of God, that can really mean any time frame. I don't know how many of you have learned that God works on His timetable, and it doesn't line up with our timetable. And to us, a little while may be at the end of this message. Um, (laughs) but to God, that may be many, many generations down the road, right? When God says a little while, what does that mean? Psalm 90 and verse 4 says, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. I mean, a thousand years is like the mid-shift. 2 Peter 3, 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and... A thousand years is one day. So, I mean, when God says a little while, we don't really know exactly what that means. It could be a long time. It could be a short time. But your guess is as good as mine. And and I'll tell you this, your answer, though, to that question, how long is it there in Haggai, is going to depend on your interpretation of this prophecy. So, in deciding that, 
I might consider that this text does not explicitly say in the last days, though it could certainly mean that. Do you like how vague I'm being so far? It's intentional. In verse 7, we see that the nations will also shake. And here again, there are varying opinions. God shook the nations by overthrowing the Babylonians when the Persians came in. He shook the nations by bringing the Greeks in to overthrow them. And he shook the nations when Alexander the Great died. And the nations were, his, his, king, his empire was divided into four uh, partitions. And only two of those really lasted. And then the Maccabees kind of rose up for a bit there in Judea. And then uh, after that, the Romans came in. And so some look at that and say there was a continual shaking of the nations from, from this time until Christ arrived. Um, let's see where I'm at here. Just simply saying all the, all the different nations and dynasties which came and went during that time. Another opinion is the shaking of nations uh, by the rapid spreading of the gospel after Christ came. And they started spreading the gospel throughout the world. And, and nothing will shake a nation like the gospel. Amen. So that could be one. Um, and, and that, when you think about what nations means here, it's the same as Gentiles. Um, and so when you read nations in your Old Testament, um, it's, it's referring to the heathen, the Gentiles. And so what was shaking up the, the Gentiles after Christ ascended? Well, it wasn't going to be much longer after He ascended that uh, the gospel was going to go primarily to the Gentiles. And so some take that opinion there. Um, Others still see fulfillment in Christ's second coming when the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And so those are some viewpoints there. We see next that after the shaking of the nations, the desire of all nations shall come. Now this is worth to really get because what's the desire of all nations? Well, remember when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, he said to him in Genesis 12, 3, and in thee all families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Genesis 18, 18, he says after his name's been changed to Abraham, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And then in Genesis 22, 18, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so there was something about this that uh, there was an expectation of this blessing to come. In both cases there that I read in Genesis 18 and Genesis 22, that word for nations is the same one that's found here in Haggai 2.7. And again, it means the Gentiles. And not only would Abraham's seed be a blessing to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. All families of the earth could be blessed. Now, that's only possible in Christ. There was nothing in Abraham that was so good that because of Abraham having this awesome bloodline, everybody was going to be blessed because they had descended from this man. Because God's not concerned about genealogies. And so it wasn't that Abraham was going to possess something in himself. His righteousness came from God. That's what the Bible says. It was imputed by God. And so there was nothing there that would have been this huge blessing. There's nothing about national Israel which could bless all nations except one way. That was through the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Christ is the means by which all families of the earth could be blessed. And Paul makes it absolutely clear in Galatians 3, where he says there in verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham. He preached the gospel to Abraham. That's amazing. All right. Saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So the gospel and all nations being blessed, it's telling us that's tied together. And Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And so the Bible makes it clear that in order for all families of the earth to be blessed, it was going to have to be through the seed, singular of Abraham, which the Apostle Paul made clear is the Lord Jesus Christ.
And so it's only through Christ that we can be blessed, that all the nations of the earth could be blessed. And since that's true, then who here is the desire of nations? I believe it has to be Christ. He is the desire of nations. Um, Now, I've been pretty coy up to this point, but I'll start forming my opinion for you. um, And I'll give you my full opinion at the end. It's uh, very widely accepted that this prophecy is about Christ, that Christ is the desire of nations. But there's differences as to when the desire of nations arrives in this context. Is it Christ's first coming or is it his second coming? When Christ comes again the second time, which nations will desire him? You don't have to answer. I'm just, just thought. Which nations will desire him when he comes the second time? We read that out of nations are going to come a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people coming out of nations. We know believers are desirous of that day. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Um, we, we desire that day, but do we read of any nation which desires that day? Let me give you some passages to consider. When the sixth seal is opened, the earth and the heavens are shaken, which is mentioned here in Haggai. But instead of celebrating Christ as the desire of nations, listen to what the Bible says. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman, every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? And then in Revelation 11, the Bible speaks about these two witnesses that'll, that'll preach, and they're not welcomed. In fact, when they die, the earth celebrates. They don't even give them a burial, uh, which is cool because in three days, their spirit's going to return, they're going to stand right up. But they're not happy about it. In fact, the two witnesses are killed by the beast And um, like I said, the people celebrate that. But this is what it says in Revelation 11, 9, and 10. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Isn't it amazing how the preaching of the gospel is torment to some? Anyway... And when the seventh angel sounds um, and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of of the Lord and of His Christ, um, are the nations excited then? Well, this is what Revelation 11, 18 says. And the nations were angry, and and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, and that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Then we get to Revelation 19. We see Christ's physical return to this earth. He arrives on a white horse to judge and to make war. His eyes will be as a flame of fire. And this is what it says in Revelation 19, 15. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now, I read you all that to say clearly it's difficult to establish that He's the desire of nations when he comes the second time. The nations are being judged. They're angry. They don't want anything to do with it. They're hiding. So I just find that interesting. Some try to make Haggai's prophecy fit the millennial reign of Christ. But Christ will have destroyed his enemies, as I just kind of read. And at that point, he will be ruling with a rod of iron. When somebody's ruling you with a rod of iron, I don't know that you have a say on what your desire is. I'm not saying I fully understand all of, all of this. I'm just saying I, this is probably a dumb way to look at it, but I was thinking about boot camp. Somebody there was ruling me with a rod of iron, and they could have cared less if I wanted to go to the shopette and get a Pepsi. That's what the Air Force does. <laughs> the Marines are back here going... <laughs> Oh, yeah, soldiers are here, too. God bless you, brother. We got some trained killers up in here. And so, I mean, I was just killing some, some Pepsi, brother. I wasn't. Uh, hey, at our boot camp, it was so hot, we just had to polish our shoes. We couldn't even march. Oh, it's black flag again. We can't do anything. 
That explains some of this. Amen. It's just the way it is. Thankfully, when I went to OTS, it was in the winter, and I had just left from Minot. And so I don't have time for storytelling, but anyway, went down to Montgomery, and uh, it's like 18 degrees, and they were canceling everything. I'm like, man, this feels good. So I picked the best times to go to both boot camps. Um, but anyway, some find fulfillment in the millennial reign, and, and, and I don't argue any of this. I'm just telling you what's out there. Um, but like I said, Christ will have destroyed his enemies at that point. He'll be ruling with a rod of iron. Um, the reason why so many see the millennial reign of Christ as the fulfillment of Haggai 2.7 is because we read here in this prophecy that this house spoken of is going to be filled with the glory of the Lord. Verse 9 even tells us that the glory of this latter house is going to be greater than the former. Um, and the belief is there's going to be a third temple that's going to be rebuilt where animal sac- sacrifices will once again be instituted. Um, but I see a lot of issues with that thinking. I don't have time to get in all that. We covered that at length a few months ago. But I'll just say again, why would God return to a system that he was never pleased with? Why would he go back to sacrifices which could never take away sin? that uh, were only a picture of the one who was to come. Uh, Chapters 8 through 10 in Hebrews are are really clear that the new covenant is far better than the old covenant, that it's built upon better promises. It's it's just established better. Here's a verse that I really like to kind of key in when I I think about this, as Hebrews 8.13 says, a new covenant, comma, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth, and waxeth old, it's ready to vanish away. The Bible says that there was a covenant, there was a law covenant. But when Christ came, that thing became old. It became uh, ready to vanish away, the Bible says. It decays. And it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this idea that God is going to resurrect a system in which the Bible makes abundantly clear that it was old, that it was decayed, and it was going to vanish away, and in fact, it has vanished away. Let's look at verse 8 in Haggai. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, why does God have to say that the silver and gold are His? Well, once again, there's a lot of opinions. (laughs) One is that God is telling them, don't worry about not having the resources. I've got enough. Thank God. Um, hey, listen, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He'll supply our needs according to his riches in glory. And so, listen, we don't have to worry about that. But uh, he, he could be saying that. And, and he could be saying, look, because I own it all, I can adorn this house any way I want, any way I choose. Another is that God doesn't need silver and gold in order for his house to be beautified because his glory is more than enough. Hallelujah. Another opinion is that God won't need gold and silver in the temple prophesied here because it's going to be unlike any temple ever built. Now, before I give you my opinion, which I know you're just waiting to hear, look at verse 9. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. The latter house spoken of by Haggai is going to have greater glory than the former temple. Now, that's a big deal when you consider how magnificent Solomon's temple was. For for Haggai to say, after he's asked the question, how is this in comparison? Uh, Listen, don't get down. It's already saying that 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 physical temple, it wasn't going to compare to Solomon's. And yet we're told here that it's going to surpass it in, in the sense that the glory of it was going to be greater than that which Solomon had ever built. That's amazing. Now, after all this time of dancing around a position, I'm going to attempt to express my position to you, my opinion, to where I currently stand, which means I reserve my right to change my opinion at any point in the future. Amen, Jed. Now, I'll have to repeat myself just a little bit in doing this, but when God gave the law covenant, it was terrifying. The earth shook. This prophecy states the earth will shake again as well as the heavens. 
the nations will shake and the desire of nations shall come. And at that point, the the latter house will be filled with glory and it'll be greater glory than the first. Now, this is where we need to go to Hebrews 12. You can keep a finger, a marker there in Haggai. I think I come back to that to make reference in my notes. Hebrews chapter 12. And we need to read beginning in verse 18 there. In Haggai, or (laughs) in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, it says, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of the words which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they for they could not endure that which was commanded. And, it, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was that sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But now are you coming to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth. But now hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So we have to take this in connection with what we've read in Haggai. We see in verses 18 through 21 here how terrifying the giving of the law was. And why shouldn't it be? It was going to be a law that nobody could keep except Christ. Nobody was going to be able to live up to this. They were all going to fall short of God's glory. It was a terrifying thing. But in verse 22, it says, We haven't come to Mount Sinai. But we are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then notice in verse 24, that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, which is better than the shedding of animals' blood. Amen. Because his blood is perfect. Now, verses 26 and 27 here, reach back to Haggai Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. We read in verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth. Okay, when is that speaking of? We know it's speaking of when the law was given, right? The law covenant was given. The, 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 the mountain shook. The earth shook. Um, God was establishing this, this terrifying covenant with them. And, and so uh, we call it now the old covenant But we also see in verse 26 that the earth will shake again. And then the heavens will shake also. And and in verse 27, the writer defines for us when this took place. Here's what we read. Yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaking. The next shaking that is described in Haggai would have to be the removing of the old covenant. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 is defining for us. It's interpreting, if you will, part of the prophecy found in Haggai. The old covenant was shakable. Why? Because it wasn't built on anything better. It wasn't wasn't established upon better promises. And that covenant was shakable, and the things which would be shaken, the Bible says that they would be removed. They were going to be replaced with those things which cannot be shaken. All that was going to remain after the shaking of that old covenant was what would remain. 
And who do we find at the end of the law? Christ. Isn't that what the law is to do? It's our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. And so all that was going to remain was that which is unmovable, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than that, um, I shouldn't say more than that, but in conjunction with that, we read in verse 28 that really it's speaking of a kingdom. There's a kingdom that would, would, would usher in that would be unmovable. What's that kingdom? Well, John the Baptist came preaching, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And for those of you who like to make a big difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, Mark interprets that as Jesus preaching the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so I think those who try to make a difference say, well, one's for the Jews and one's for the Gentiles. Look, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, according to the Bible, are the same thing. Because what Mark says and what Matthew says, exact same context. One says heaven, one says God. Um, So Mark says it was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 21, 43, Jesus said to the Pharisees and the chief priests, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation that will bring forth the fruits thereof. Something was going to shake up because God wasn't getting the fruit that he wanted. And you remember the parable? Well, just give me a little bit more time. Let me dig around it. Let me dung it. Let me uh, just give it another shot here. And if there's no fruit then, then then you can cast it down. You can throw it in the fire. And so, uh, anyway, he said he's going to take the nation from them. He's going to give it to, um, or the kingdom from them, give it to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. The kingdom that we've received, this kingdom that is unshakable, it's the gospel kingdom. Jesus said, I'm preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. They're intertwined. You're not getting to the kingdom without the gospel. Does this make sense what I'm trying to say here? Because a lot of times I study things, I'm like, man, that's good. And then it comes down, it's like, man, that made no sense. And so, um, anyway, now, the, the kingdom that, that it says he's going to take the, the kingdom from them, and he's going to give it to a nation. Which nation was that? Did he give it to the, uh, the, the Americans? Did he give it to Mexico? Uh, who did he give the kingdom to? Because here, here's this kingdom that he's, he's taken from one, and he says, I'm going to give it to a nation that will bring forth fruit. I don't know of any nation that's ever existed that has ever produced fruit upon this earth in the manner in which this is talking about. Do you? America sure ain't the shining example of the gospel. You think God looks down upon us and smiles today when we're killing kids in the womb and now we're talking about killing them after the womb and, and, uh, and now we've got legislated sin everywhere and we can go to whatever bathroom we feel like because that's what I feel like right now. This nation doesn't bring forth fruits unto God. Come on now. And so you can pick any nation that's ever existed, and there hasn't been a nation that has ever brought forth the kind of fruits that God is talking about. And so when God says here, or Jesus says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you, I'm going to give it to a nation that's going to bring forth fruit. He's given it to his children. We are that nation as children of God which produce fruit. No other people produce fruit but the children of God. And so he, he took that nation and he gave it to another nation. He gave it to his children. The gospel is the new covenant, which verse 24 says, Jesus is the mediator of. It's all tied together. And while the old covenant was shakable and it's vanished away, the new covenant can never be shaken. It's a better covenant. It's on better promises. And more importantly is this, it was established upon the blood of Christ. I think Hebrews 12 is clear, my opinion. I think it's clear in the interpretation of Haggai 2. And it's the comparison of how the old law covenant was established versus how the new covenant was established. Which, in my mind, makes perfect sense Because Haggai goes on to say, look, the desire of nations is going to come. Which is the ushering in of the gospel kingdom. The spreading of the gospel. 
And it's a biblical fact that the, na- the, the nation of Israel, national Israel, rejected Christ. And as a result of that, the gospel then went primarily to the Gentiles, which is synonymous with nations. National Israel, there was revival in Israel. Thank God thousands were being saved. And that's my hope and prayer today as well. I, I agree with the Apostle Paul. But national Israel never desired Christ. But the Gentiles would receive him. I could read you a lot of verses. Let me just give you a couple from the book of Acts. And if you ever just want to read the book of Acts with that in mind, you'll see it all throughout. Well, especially once you get past chapter 7 after Stephen is stoned. Acts chapter 13, verses 45 through 47 say, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye have put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And then in Acts twenty-eight twenty-eight. It says, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. And there's a lot of verses we could read. That's just a couple to give you my point that um, there was coming a point when the Gentiles would receive the gospel kingdom. They would receive the preaching, the, the message that Christ was preaching. Repent. And he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Um, now, I'm not saying we haven't equally rejected it. Amen. Because the laws concluded everybody under sin. But understand that the, uh, there's definitely been more fruit among the Gentiles. That's undeniable. And so anyway, um, what about this house here mentioned in Haggai being filled with the glory of the Lord? Because all this has got to tie together. What about the latter house having greater glory than the former? Well, this is where I get blasted, but that's okay. Um. Many like to say, well, we have to in- interpret the Scriptures in their historical grammar, gr- grammatical method. In the historical grammatical method. That's just a fancy way of saying you have to interpret every Scripture literally. But even those who say that don't do so at every turn. And I can prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Come see me afterwards. I can make it very easy for you to know. Um, so this is a spiritual book. Spiritual things are to be spiritually discerned. The Spirit guides us into all truth. And like it or lump it, Paul spoke about allegories in the Scripture. That's what he said in Galatians 4. These things are an allegory. Now, on that note, really you can just, you can go back to Haggai. You can just look at these verses in Haggai and see the problem with always saying, well, this has got to be literal. And, and I like to tell people, I will literally interpret the Scriptures every turn, but sometimes I'm literally interpreting it that it's a spiritual application. You can't do that. Why not? So, just think about this. We read in Haggai here, I will fill this house with glory, and the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. If we are to take this literally, then it must refer to the temple Haggai was stirring them to rebuild. Isn't that right? This house. Which house? This one right here that we're rebuilding. This house is going to be filled with glory, and it's going to be greater than the former. That's how we would have to literally take that. It would have to literally refer to the second temple which was being built and will be finished in about four years from this point. But I don't see where this was literally fulfilled in the second temple. And by the way, like I was saying, those who say you got to do historical grammatical, uh, okay, fine, but then why do you place this in the millennium? The Bible says this house. So you see, even people who say you got to do everything literal, they're spiritualizing things as well. They just don't admit it. But anyway, what I'm saying here, we would have to take this literally to mean the second temple. But we know that the second temple, this one being rebuilt, it never had the glory of the first temple. It never did. We know Jesus was never welcome there. 
Look, in fact, Jesus was so unwelcome there, they put him to death over saying, destroy that temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. This temple is key to all this. Jesus was never welcome there. We know that Jesus had to cleanse that second temple because it had been so corrupted. We know that the second temple was destroyed just as Jesus predicted. I don't know that I want my faith in something that the glory is going to be greater of and it can be shaken to the point that it's going to fall to the ground. Come on now. But remember something was coming which could not be shaken. Clearly the second temple was shaken. In fact, not one stone was left upon another. I'd say that's a pretty good shaking. I don't see how the second temple was ever literally greater than the first in any way whatsoever. Therefore, I believe this latter house, and I know, I know I'm going to get in trouble here, but don't cast stones at me. But I believe this latter house refers to the spiritual temple that the Lord is building right now. For sure, this temple of believers, the, 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 I'm going to get to the verses in a minute. We will be filled with God's glory. And I know for a fact that this temple is far greater than anything Solomon ever built. Well, how do you know that? Because Jesus said, referring of himself, there's a greater than Solomon here. What did Jesus call his body? He called it the temple. Listen to these verses. I, I, I personally think it's undeniable. 1 Peter 2.5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. And holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God. The latter house, the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Those lively stones, those believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are being built up. We are growing into an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together, listen, for an habitation of God through the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ as a son over his house, whose house are we? Amen. Revelation 3, 12, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, that's going to literally be uncomfortable if that's literally a pillar. If these verses aren't enough, then consider what Zechariah prophesied only about four months after what Haggai just said. It's the exact same context. As Haggai, he's speaking to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And this is what Zechariah 6, 12 and 13 say. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Who is that? That's Christ. The man who is the branch. He shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. How is he functioning right now? Is he not our great high priest? The branch is Christ, and there's only one temple we can honestly say that the Lord is building, and that's his spiritual temple. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Christ himself is the builder of his spiritual temple, and he has built it on the mountains of his unchangeable affection, his omnipotent grace, and his infallible truthfulness. I believe there's enough biblical evidence to support that what is being prophesied here in Haggai is the spiritual temple of the Lord, which is not made of hands. It's made up of believers in Christ. And I think there's enough evidence that any who have that opinion should not be branded as some kind of false teacher. And finally today, verse 9 there in Haggai, it says that in this place will I give peace. In this temple, this one that was going to be built, built would be found peace. And there's only true peace uh, in this world. There's only one place where true peace is found. 
It's not in a building made with hands. You can come in here into the church house. It doesn't mean you're at peace today. Isn't that right? But if you're in Christ, there's peace. It's peace that passes all understanding. It's, it's peace that the world doesn't know, can't comprehend. But it's only found in Christ who is the temple of the believers. Revelation 21, 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Hebrews 9, 11, But Christ being come and high priest uh, of God, excuse me, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. That's pretty clear to me. God is building a temple today, and those who are in Christ, your lively stones being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of that building. Amen. What a blessing. And so that's my opinion. You can take it for what it's worth. But anyway, no matter where you stand on the, on the interpretation there of Haggai, above all else, I hope you know Christ as your Savior. When we get away from all this uh, depth of stuff, uh, listen, all that's really going to matter to you in the end when Jesus calls your number, do you know him or not? So the only way to experience that, um, to know that is to know Christ. And when you know Christ, you'll have everlasting peace. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the attentiveness of your people. Lord, they've been very good and patient to listen to this today. And um, just refresh us here in the few minutes we have before the morning service. Would you help the singing today to be pleasing? And may every singer be prayed up, um, wanting to honor you. And, And God, when the preaching of your word happens, may it go forth with great power that you would be glorified, that you would be lifted up. And God, that you would draw sinners unto yourself. May this building be a place where people can come and find Christ and Lord can get their hearts right and and that it will encourage servants. And God, just help us. I just want our service to be a blessing to you. God, uh, when you look down upon Liberty Baptist Tabernacle, I hope you're pleased that you can say, those are my people. Go with us now, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you.